You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Abby Gertz. Abby is an actress, a teacher, activist, and writer. She's been involved in an incredibly diverse range of creative projects and nonprofit organizations. Abby and I, we both went to Juilliard, but I started right after she graduated. So we know each other through mutual friends and through Artists Striving to End Poverty, the nonprofit that she helped to found. She and my husband, Frankie, uh, taught together for a summer in South Africa right after he and I had started dating through ASTEP. Abby is an engaging and caring person, and I loved hearing about how she has built her life as an artist and how it's always changing. I hope you enjoy the 31st episode of the compass. And there's a lot of things I want to ask you about, but um, let's just start out with what do you do when you feel yourself going to the dark side as an artist? Mm. Um, to combat it and also because I loved the work that I do in the nonprofit sector. And um, maybe we could start there. Yeah. What that is. Yeah, sure. So after I graduated from, <clears throat> from Juilliard in 2004, I spent a couple of years doing the thing, pounding pavement and, um, you know, doing what I was supposed to do and waiting for the phone calls and going on all the auditions. And it was, it was great and a huge learning experience. I actually left New York right away, and I got um, fairly good representation in Los Angeles. So I was there for almost two years. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I connected with um, um, LA Shakespeare Festival and, um, and their program, Will Power to Youth. And I started doing that because we had already... So I founded this organization, co-founded Artists Striving to End Poverty back when we were in school. Mm-hmm. And um, and I guess as a continuation after I moved to Los Angeles, I kept doing that work. I was very interested in it simultaneously, you know, auditioning and trying to be an actor. And I loved it. And then I, you know, I, I loved that work, and but I, but I really missed. Um, I miss, I'm, I started to miss the season changes, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and that was really hard because I grew up in Illinois, mm-hmm. four seasons, and New York is more amenable in that way. And um, so eventually moved back in 2006 or something like that, and um, then and, and then really came on board with ASTEP. Um, and by that time, the engine was really pumping in the nonprofit. And... Uh, so, so started doing that more heavily and slowly over time up until about October <laughs> of last year. It really took over my life in a, in a, in a great way, you know, in, in so many great ways. And, um, and so I think, yeah, I think in answer to your question, I, I'm kind of an expert in not going to the dark side and doing, like trying to do <clears throat> other things that are related that I also care very much about. And I very much believe that that we can be all of those things that we're meant to be, and and artists are so 
multifaceted in so many ways. And so I really pursued that, as you know, mm-hmm. um, for so many years and still do. I'm still actively involved as a consultant in the nonprofit sector and with ASAP and um, and still very much involved in that world. But more recently have transitioned back into my more creative actor self mm-hmm. for the last few months. And that's been a huge transition for me. So I'm, I'm feeling that almost like knee-jerk reaction to want to jump back into the nonprofit sector. But right. I'm really trying to stay the course and, and because I keep getting a little unbalanced you know, doing that work so fully and so heavily for so many years that I, um, without, it kind of creeps up on you. It creeped up on me. And certainly the nonprofit work and programming and international programs, certainly very creative. And we're using a lot of that that's inside of me, but it's a different, it's a different part of my creative self. Yeah. And, and, uh, just couldn't really ignore that anymore. I didn't want to. And before I became embittered and sad, I needed to needed tra- to, to transition out of full-time work there at Artists Struggling in Poverty. Now that you're pursuing the more traditional acting route again, have you found any of those old dark side things coming back or like the feeling of lack of control or anything like that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. My, my, I you know, have a couple of really close friends who have really helped me a lot <clears throat> through this time. I knew, I think I knew in October when I left, officially left my, my job at ASAP, that it would be a little painful and that I would have to mourn and that it would be a big, a big, you know, sort of turning the Titanic in a different direction. Well, you dedicated so much of your time to it for years. I did. I really did. And I, I still do. And I, I, I think I've learned that. I think through all of this, I've learned that, it's again, it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. It should be. I think for me, at least, it should be both and. And they're not they're not actually separate. They're all the projects that I'm interested in working on and am working on are so fully related to everything that I was doing at ASTEP and with other agencies that I was working mm-hmm. um, with and for, you know, for the last decade. And, um, and likewise, that work is really informing, you know, all of my capital A artistry or capital A acting work, you know. Yeah, the, the people that you've met and the stories you've heard, yeah. I'm sure, influence everything you bring to a part now. Yeah, and I, uh, I feel that it's really... Mm-hmm. You know, I put myself back in acting class, which has been <laughs> scary but wonderful. And I found a great group of people and a great teacher. Um, and um, it's just been nice to just get back into the playground and do all the like all those parts that I just wanted have wanted to do. And it's mm-hmm. been so um, sort of refalling in love with the craft of acting has been such a beautiful thing. Are you having flashbacks to when you were in college and were it kind of taking formal classes like that? A little bit. A little bit. It's different. I mean, I'm such a different person. Yeah. We change. We are literally, right, it's like science, right? We're actually totally different. We regenerate our entire selves, right, over however many years. Mm -hmm. Our selves are literally different. And um, I'm a totally different person than I was in 2004. And, um, but yeah. I think I think it's a little it's a little unnerving. Like really, I did all this work, and then do I really need to go back to class? And I did, I did, and I do, and I'm still. I just came from a lot of so I was working on some Shanley. My favorite. I mean, it's, so good. <laughs> it's so one of my good. favorites. Working on some Williams, and it's really um, so wonderful to dive back in. And scary, terrifying, and then. And then I think the other knee-jerk reaction of the stability of of um, of the of a more traditional sort of nine-to-five kind of of work um, that I got used to, you know, and uh, and and that that's you know a reality too, just paying rent and, <laughs> and all of that. But, Are but you, I think sorry. in a lot of ways, I think I think I expected it so. Was abrasive myself, I think, for it a little bit. 
spent a little bit more faithful than I even thought, but you know. But you knew you needed the change, so yeah. I knew it. I knew it, and and the you know the thought of knowing that the transition is going to be hard and actually living through it are two different things. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I have you know people like you that I can you know talk to openly about it, and I don't know that I could have done this you know even a couple years ago or four years ago. First of all, but then also, um, yeah, I don't know if I could have. There were some things, there, uh, you know, that's why you've created this podcast. There are really painful things about the profession, the business side, and also the, the actual work of it. It's really just, I always thought the Juilliard or probably any grad school or conservatory training was like looking at every tiny little square inch of your body inside and out, your soul, your mind, your heart, and examining it letting it be what it is, and that's not easy to do. So the business is hard. The actual work you're doing, Shanley, is hard. It's all hard <laughs> and scary and good. It is. It's really good, too. It really is. Yeah. So, Can you tell me a little bit about when you guys started A-Step? Yeah. I mean, we started programming. Oh, we were just talking about the Chautauqua. Conservatory mm-hmm. and some mutual friends that we have that we both uh, did it at different times. Yeah, we both did it at different times. What year were you there? You were. I think I guess I must have been there in two thousand and two. Okay, and, and I guess mutual friends that I was there with. Yeah, I guess I was there in two thousand four. Okay, mm-hmm. so a couple years later. Um, so the summer after that, so I was doing training programs. I did like summer stock after my first year at Juilliard, and then the second year I did Chautauqua. I was training still, mm-hmm. and then the third year, our friend. Mauricio Salgado and um, and a couple of our other friends at Julia, we were just thinking about what we'd like to do with our summer. And um, his parents run a, a nonprofit in South Florida, and um, there was nothing that was lining up for me. This probably was like what February or March of two thousand and three, and we started just gathering people together. And we went down and we did you know two weeks. It wasn't much two weeks of programming with um, uh, clients that that um, were working with his parents' nonprofit, hmm. the, the, the children of the clients that they were working with. And the children were out of school. It's kind of, so it's a rough neighborhood to, to grow up in. It's very economically very poor. It's where Hurricane Andrew sort of came through and dropped the whole city of, of Homestead into the ocean. Right. And uh, um, migrant farm workers and, um, and, uh, um, you know, lots of bad statistics of what happens to children if they don't have the right structure. And so we went and tried to provide some structure for those students in, in a, in an artistic environment and really caught, caught fire. Like, uh, just the feeling of being able to, after three years of training, being able to then take everything that we had been learning and then and then give it away and, hmm. and, and to dialogue, you know, with these students who were just so ready and willing and interested in expressing them. Very small kids, you know, middle school. I think we only worked with middle schoolers the first year. So we did that one summer and then we kept going back. I mean, we've been working there, the longest running partner at, at ASAP, and that was in 2003. We officially became a 501c3 in 2005, maybe, 2000, maybe the beginning of 2006, and then um, that's when we started sort of gaining a few new partners, our international partners, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and that's when things really picked up steam, but we started programming back in 2003, and then Was she involved from the very beginning, or did she kind of join you guys? She was a financial backer um, for us in 2003. She didn't come with us to Florida, and it wasn't until around 2006 where it felt like, you know, myself and Mauricio, Beth Kanavka, Mm -hmm. um, uh, were doing this programming in the summer, and we had kind of structure and some lesson plans and some curricula going on, and then Mary Mitchell had this idea and this um, this infrastructure of the 501c3, and she was putting the paperwork together, and we had the same goals and ideas, so it just kind of merged I see. at that point. So it was kind of a little bit two different entities in the beginning. One was housed at Juilliard, and one was really Mary Mitchell and some of her friends putting together a board and some ideas, 
and then it was like we had all these people and she had this infrastructure of the of the of the nonprofit mm-hmm. status and so we merged and, and that was in 2000 2005 yeah when that, when that happened yeah but we worked at a marriage's apartment for a good two years probably before and we got office space when did it like really become a full-time gig for you so I actually so it was very part-time all the way until uh, for a couple of years where we were working out of her apartment and then it was so part-time that I um, I actually took a very long hiatus in 2000, so right after, so Frankie, mm-hmm. your husband, and I did a, a program of um, A-Steps in South Africa in 2007 with an organization called uh, the Ubuntu Tree Education Fund, which still exists in the Eastern Cape, and they're doing great work. Um, and then right after that, I had a gig in Alaska at mm-hmm. um, Perseverance Theater Company, and then I was getting this email from, uh, she had written a couple of times from... Um, from she she's from Istanbul and she runs a music conservatory in Istanbul and she said I called the drama division she's a graduate of Juilliard too uh-huh. and the music division she's a pianist she graduated in the seventies or something hmm. she's Turkish and she her name is Benal Tandasever um, and she um, was emailing me I was like who's this woman Kathy Hood there are the put you in touch put us in touch uh-huh. and uh, she was emailing me. And um, I was kind of ignoring it because we were so busy in South Africa, and I was very busy in Alaska. And she was saying, I want to create the drama division in this conservatory. And mm. I've heard that you might be the right person to talk to. Um, and I, you know, at the time, I, I just couldn't really think of why I would move, even for a series of months, halfway around the world. And, but then after, during the last, the, that gig at Perseverance, the idea really inspired me and, and also financially, you know, it was really like, let me, let me just take this gig and mm-hmm. let step get more, you know, grounded and financially stable. Because you've been working with nonprofit and underprivileged mm-hmm. children and this was some, this was actually like something that people were paying, like a yes. conservatory similar yes. to Juilliard type right. thing. So it was more of a, of definitely a for-profit. On that side of it. Exactly. So I went in 2007 and, uh, and we can talk about that. that. I was, I ended up, I was going to go for like four, for a semester uh-huh. and start this program and then get out. And I ended up staying for three years. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I stayed there until 2010. Which wow. Was, was a long time and I loved it so much. So, so much. I'm actually heading back there in um, two, two weeks. And this um, was what age students? Was it college age students? No. Um, uh, uh, children. Okay. Yeah, mostly okay. children. Um, Seeking more rigorous musical training. Okay. And um, pri- mostly private, like private lessons and uh, theory and ear training and mm-hmm. all of that. And she had a real, the owner, and all had a really strong desire to create a drama division with interest, and she had interest in it, thought it would really add to the community, and it did. And that's not the reason that I stayed, although I loved working there and um, still love that, that school and what they're doing. Um, I stayed because I, I got heavily involved in A-Steppy kind of work, even though it was there. affiliated with A-Step. Yeah. There was so much work to do there, particularly because of the refugee situation in in Turkey. It's kind of, it's a bit of a, um, uh, what do you call it? Well, everything sort of gets, you know... Like sucked, funneled through. Funneled into this little crevice in, mm. in, in Turkey before you hit the EU and... and um, in Greece, people really can't cross that, that border as easily, um, and so a lot of refugees can enter more freely through eastern border, which is what's happening with Syria. This was before Syria, hmm. but there were so many refugees there when I was there, and I con- I got in touch with um, a f- uh, it was a mutual friend of, of someone I was I was working on a play mm-hmm. that she did. <laughs> Another story. Julie, <laughs> okay, um, which was wonderful. But um, during that play, I met a, a woman who was an intern at UNHCR, which mm-hmm. is the branch of the UN that deals with refugees um, and processing them. And she she found out about my previous work at ASTEP and other similar ventures, and she said, "Could you please come to the office and we could really 
would love to talk to you and see if you can maybe give me some things. So I got involved at a center for refugee youth um, unaccompanied minors. Mm. And um, they were just so inspiring and wonderful to work with. Um, and, and so I stayed to work with them. When you're working with kids like that, what, what types of things do you find are valuable for them? What types of things are you working on with them? I think bottom line for me, what I see is just that someone will listen. Yeah. It's just what we all need and, and want, I think, at a base level. Just can someone hear me? Can someone see me? And there were children there who maybe had left their country of origin, their home country, between, you know, at the, at the most, maybe eight years ago, hadn't seen their families, or if they had remaining families, depending on where they come from and what, coming from and what um, was happening in their home countries, um, up to, you know, very new arrivals. Um, but the last, you know, always new ones were coming in. We only had a, a certain number of beds there. But um, they took on as many as they can. I mean, the situation is so different now because literally there are about 3 million more refugees in Turkey alone since uh, 2002, 2003, when the Syrian crisis really started. Um, so even back then, it was pretty, it was pretty extreme. Um, but I, you know, there was nothing going on. That's the thing. You go to these uh, refugee camps or these facilities... There's no, they're children, you know, they're, they, they need to be in school, they, they should be reading books, they should have teachers, and they should be learning languages, and they should be studying maths, and they should be reading, you know, doing extracurricular activities, there was literally, there was nothing going on. I walked in the facility and they were all sitting and twiddling their thumbs, and sometimes they, like, organize a little soccer game in the courtyard, and that's how the children were existing right. there for years, years. Mm. And um, so I just loved them and loved working with them. And uh, we, I did some acting classes. It was tough with the language barrier, and so I ended up like I was going to ask about that because we had Afghans, we had French-speaking boys from different countries. I was working in a facility that was only for boys. They had the girls in separate, for obvious reasons, they kept mm-hmm. them separate. Um, and then we had Sudanese, so we had Arabic-speaking, we had French-speaking. And we had, um, you know, the Afghani, um, um, uh, lots of Afghanis. Um, so they were all speaking, it was like Babel. Hmm. And in some ways, the, some of the games and exercises that we were doing translated across language. Um, in other ways, it didn't. So I ended up meeting with them separately to, to do work. And then ultimately, the thing that stuck was the writing. We did a lot hmm. of playwriting. And they wrote plays of their stories. And when I asked them what they wanted to write about, it was almost an immediate, we want to write about our story, what happened, what's happening in our countries, what's happening with our families, what happened to me. And, um, and I, I was so, I could literally see relief, you know, and feel relief when it didn't have to be me. I really, there was no one listening, still, still not, you know, to so many of these children. And that's what a parent does, you know, when there's no one. <laughs> you know, the community's not there, or at least the guardian is there. And they didn't have that. They had each other. There was no adult. There was no guardian. There were some people working at that facility that were great, very generous, but so overworked. And art has this very acute ability. I'm biased. And there are lots of vehicles, lots of organizations that do amazing things through soccer, hmm. through chess equestrian club or whatever but I don't, I don't mean to put that down but art is the language of the soul and there's something really important and special about that medium and I think it was palpable now to experience hearing their stories and, and then being heard yeah so much and so that was the big reason why you stayed there so long Yeah. Just because it was so incredible. Just, uh, All of these different countries that you've worked in, how have you worked with the language barrier? Like, how much, how many languages do you speak? How many times do you work with a translator? How much is it just like, yeah. um, you know, body language and? 
Yeah, and her, I mean, at that, that facility, it was um, very touch and go, especially in the beginning for me. That's a good example because there were so many languages, and it's mm-hmm. really tough. I was nervous, I was hesitant at first um, to do this, but I ended up using some of the boys who were bilingual as translators, which is totally unprofessional and, you know, like you're also putting this responsibility on these boys to right. translate and be part kind of teacher, facilitator mm-hmm. of the classroom. Very difficult, but they were very willing just because they were so hungry and there was nothing going on. Right. Just threw caution to the wind. There's very little red tape, which is at one time good that I was able to come in without them really even knowing. Of course, they got to know me, but they didn't know who I was. I could have been anyone. <laughs> There's a lot more red tape here for good reason in the States. But they're, um, th- those facilities, they do their best. But there's such a high demand and so many people, so many mm-hmm. children and adults that really need help in programming. Um, but the language barrier was really tough there. Um, at When you were at the conservatory, were you working... In English, or what was Mostly that English. situation? Okay. So those were more um, privileged students, and they all all of my students, for the most part, were pretty, pretty. They were bilingual, um, so that wasn't a challenge. I'm going. I'll, I'm doing a program this summer in Beijing, um, and I, I, I'm pretty sure I'll have a translator in the room to do the work. So depends. Hmm. There's some things, of course. The theater or movement you can do even without a translator, but at some point, especially if students are new to this way of working and talk, talk, quote unquote, talking to each right. other <laughs> without talking, um, you need you know someone in the room to speak some words, um, at least at some point. Um, yeah, it's tough. Can mm-hmm. be tough. And ASTEP has chosen to, except for a couple of sites, ASTEP chose to focus on um, places that that where where they were English like South Africa English speaking India mm-hmm. you know, people speak um, English our students all speak English there for the most part <laughs> one of our partners the students didn't speak as um, who were younger English language learners um, but yeah it's a it depends on the site and on the program. So you really learned about teaching just from jumping in and homestead and mm-hmm. working together. Cause I learned a lot about teaching from you mm-hmm. and from the people who you've taught from, you know, from older students at Juilliard who passed it on to me when I started working with art reach there. And so, yeah, I'm fascinated that you guys kind of started that tradition and which I definitely got passed down to me and like that style of teaching and group teaching and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, You're kind of <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> you, do, you know, now I know properly how to write, it, create a lesson plans, and, and yeah. how to create a curriculum, and how I've written curriculum. And I are there any resources you would recommend, like for people who want to do more teaching or teaching, like yeah. as far as that more technical side of it? Are there any like books or about yeah. pedagogy and that kind of stuff? There's actually a great book called Teach Like a Champion that we used to, used okay. to be required reading for all of our. Um, for all of our volunteers that were going to India because it was more rigorous. Like, you were there for a longer period of time mm-hmm. and you really needed to write proper lesson plans and create it, you know. The longer you're at a site, the more you really have to know what you're doing to make each right. class really work for, for yourself and, and, and for your students. Um, there, yeah, Teach Like a Cha- Champion is really great. It's more written for classroom teachers, but it totally applies okay. to the arts classroom as well. Um, and then, you know, if you're really interested, there are contact ASEP.org, reach out to them. We don't, as far as I know, at least since October, maybe they changed <laughs> it, but we have not copyrighted or like we don't, we don't, um, we freely give those resources, sort of building blocks of lesson plans, curriculum outlines, resources for games and exercises. And, awesome. Um, uh, and we've written a couple, I've written a couple of, uh, curriculum, one in particular that Mauricio and I wrote together, um, about social and emotional learning mm. through the arts. And we based a lot of that that curriculum on a book called um, by Daniel Goleman uh, about social and emotional intelligence. And that's what the art sort of gives us in spades. And that's what um, a lot of um, classrooms across the country are 
lacking. You know, we're teaching them two plus two, but then we're not teaching them how to, you know, yes. be comfortable with themselves. Mm-hmm. We're not teaching them how to collaborate with other people to listen. And I feel like with technology now, it makes it just harder and harder because everyone's doing, being so quote unquote social online, but isolating themselves in the day to day. Yeah. Yeah. So those are two places that I can go right away. Teach Like a Champion is a great, um, just guidebook. And then, um, ASAP has great actual resources too. They might even live on the website. You might be able to download some resources on the website, but you could always reach out via email. I should look. So you're taking an acting class now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then you're still doing like freelance teaching stuff. And do you feel a little bit like you're going off on your own? Like you've had this big organization behind you for so long and now it's kind of like, I can do whatever I want. I can pick and choose and like create Mm -hmm. this new day-to-day life for yourself yeah which is hard in and of itself right once yeah you, once do you feel like you have more time on your hands <laughs> like oh, what yeah. do I... that I'm trying to it's slowly building itself back up mm-hmm. but it's taken some a few months for me to be like oh my gosh I have nothing on the calendar right for Thursday well, <laughs> 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 um so that's a real thing you know to and, and I remember those days from when I was in LA like oh my gosh I've had so much structure in my life conservatory and you know it was always had structure because before that was high school before that was Mm -hmm. whatever packed out days so to to find ways to still schedule things where you're moving forward plotting you know plotting along um is really has been really important to me to rediscover how important that is and uh yeah but there's a real sense of for me there have been some projects on the back burner for a long time that I just didn't have time to touch or really um I was too busy with the nonprofit world that I've now been able to sink my teeth into and that's been really, really great. Yeah. Some projects that I just have been very passionate about but haven't haven't had time. Yeah. And finally I have time. Are you a writer as well? Yeah, I wrote a completed a screenplay. Super relevant today, even more than it was in 2010. Yeah. The refugee crisis is uh, probably the most important global issue. Did you see um, Fiddler on the Roof that's on Broadway right now? I didn't see it, but I've heard great things. It's excellent. Um, But I I went to see it, and I I don't think I'd seen it since I was in high school. I was like, oh, this is going to be... I'd heard the choreography is amazing. Mm -hmm. We have some dancer friends in it. I was like, this will be... Fun, yeah, it'll be fine. And then I saw it and I was like, oh, why does this, this feels extremely current mm-hmm. and political. And at the end, you know, when they're all rolling out of their village and migrating. with their like carts of belongings and migrating, I was like, oh, jeez. Yeah, I think about other, like Mother Courage. Mm-hmm. I'm actually one of these projects that has been on the back burner for a little while and now has come squarely into the foreground since I have more time and, um, energy to dedicate to it is a friend, a director friend of mine um, came to me with this concept a year and a half ago now uh, she wanted to do As You Like It through the lens of, of the current climate of, of refugees and mm. it makes a lot of sense because That's interesting. There's, such a, there's such a narrow focus on that being asked to leave you know, being forced out of your home in the first act, and then then it becomes like a romantic right. comedy, <laughs> you know, for acts two, three, four, and five. <laughs> and we forget that these people are, you know, Orlando, like, comes into the camp in the, in the second act, brandishing his sword because he's so hungry. Yeah. And they're in the, they have no home. They're all, Mike, they're, they're forced, they're, yeah, they're refugees, essentially. <laughs> And so it's really been interesting to approach that text, um, thinking about really the stakes of, of what they're living in. Um, um, yeah. And That's really interesting. Yeah. Plays and Fiddler, Mother Courage, as you like it. Yeah. Hmm. It's been happening throughout history, apparently. 
Um, can I ask, like, what your family makes of your career as an artist? Golly. Do you have a big family? I do. I have a very big family. Um, I have four brothers. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I have two older brothers and two younger brothers. And the family... How do I put this? The family... My, my family... Um, I come from a fairly religious family. Grew up in the Christian church, and my father's a pastor. Oh, okay. My eldest brother went to um, um, went to theology school, um, and then my two younger brothers did as well. They all work in churches, so I'm wow different. I've made a departure in a very <laughs> specific way. Hmm. can't say that they haven't been supportive. What's, what's been tricky, I think, is um, uh, just the way that art and my life in the theater has made me think about religion and politics. And mm-hmm. They're so interrelated in this country. That's been a source of... Uh, and I think it's precisely... Maybe I had questions when I was younger, and, and but, but no, nothing that maybe would have ever come to full fruition if I hadn't right if I hadn't taken the, the career path that I that I did and um and my family you know they're all very much um, still involved in the church and I'm not I'm not a church goer at all I support them I go to church when I'm with them mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a huge part of their life so if I don't go to church I'm missing family time so yeah I go to church that I mean, that is a similarity between theater and the church. It's like it's such a community activity, and it is being in a room together and Absolutely. listening and that storytelling and, music and yeah, story I was always like a little envious of that growing up of my friends mm-hmm. who were very involved in a religious community because I kind of wanted that like camaraderie and <laughs> like second home that they had, but. Yeah. I just never found one that I was really interested in. Yeah. Hmm. So as far as my... And yeah, I think I felt that too. You know, I felt... And I still do. I I miss it. There's some part of me that wishes I was a a person of faith in whatever denomination or religion it, it, it took shape in because there's this community. I'm huge, as you know, maybe... That's why we built Ace Back too. It's it's all about community and mm-hmm. support. And there's something to that in a real palpable way that I that I quite miss. And I'm a little jealous of. Um, yeah. But I, I think if there's anything that they make of my artist training, it's it, it's mostly in my in my work. It's they've always been supportive, but I think perhaps they diagnosed that my departure from the church was a direct result of, you know, if I had been, I don't know, a social worker or gone, you know, right. really more a straight and narrow nonprofit sector path, well, maybe I wouldn't have really questioned so much, but I think that's what we do in art. That's what the great works make you do, is really think and question and consider. And, um, yeah, so that's what I did. <laughs> and haven't been able to get back to church. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that you'll stay in New York City for the long term? That's a great question. I have really, um, in this transition, of course, that, that question has come up a lot for me. I mean, you've obviously, you've spent so much time in other places. You've seen so many things. For acting, sometimes it can feel like you need to be in New York or L.A. and that's it. Um, which I know is something Frankie and I struggle with, but yeah. do you do you feel like you're rooted here? Okay, so truth be known, I've never really been enamored of New York. I've never, I've never really loved it here. And you came to Juilliard for undergrad, so you moved here what when you were eighteen? Eighteen from a really so, small yeah. town. Yeah. In the mid 
I did as well, but I came after undergrad, so I was a little bit older. Yeah, but still, I mean, New York is so, and I, I, I never, yeah, I've never felt like this is it. This is my home. This transition has been really interesting because I have rediscovered New York, and some of it has been really beautiful, but it's also really grounded to me like a this really isn't this isn't it which is different than feeling very strongly that this is my artistic home like the people in the which for me is two is actually two different things I, I you know I love being outdoors I love clean air I like open spaces I like you know I was just recently in Austin something really But the thing, the thing that, I mean, besides the career stuff, (laughs) the thing that always makes us feel like we do want to stay is the people. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, these are, these are where the, like our chosen family is. You know, permanently, they come back. It's a, it's a hub. It's really something that's irreplaceable. I agree. I agree. There's, and so for now, I'm, uh, I'm really settled on being here for the foreseeable future. And that's been a really difficult decision to make because, um, I'm very, very interested in quality of life and yeah. Cost of living. (laughs) Cost of living. Having, being able to, um, to, to, to know, really know my neighbors, and I don't, I don't know Uh, where my, some of my brothers live. There's a sense of that. I grew up with that, actually. I knew all my neighbors, and we're in each other's houses all the time, running down the Mm -hmm. block. It's just, um, it's a different way that I took to think and to live. But I, what I'm trying to do is really. Keep an, keep an openness in that um, because there are you can create community here if you want it's here, the people are here it just looks a little different maybe than, than other places geographically in the world yeah. but yeah it's a tough tough thing that I've struggled with a lot a lot over the years and especially because you know even a place like Istanbul I really felt that there's something culturally, you can literally walk into anyone's home and they will feed you and they will be like, stay here. <laughs> you can live here however long you need. Like it's, it's just such a, a generosity. Yes. And, the, and, the, and part of that is um, like the, the cultural um, ties and language and, and, um, and all of that. But there's really, I really felt a little nervous. I haven't been there in hmm. a few years Did you, how did you feel spending that much time there, um, culturally as a woman? Um, it's a, it's an adjustment for sure there, but I feel, you know, there are things that happen as a, as a, as a woman that also happen here walking down the street. It's not gradations of, it's more like in Turkey, they know that you're an expat, they, you know, Mars here. It's just a little bit heightened. Hmm. unsafe or anything. I don't know if that's... Now, now the climate has changed there, actually. Now, there was always the PKK and um, the terrorists, actually, that that are from Turkey, and um, they, they're, they're, not, they're not good people. <laughs> um, over, over, you know, decades that have t- t- terrorized the, the country. Now, just in the last two months, there have been some pretty major terrorist attacks mm. in places where they weren't happening before, in the, the heart of, of Istanbul and very big tourist 
destinations, the climate is changing and the politics there are changing a lot. It's becoming more conservative. Um, and then you have literally the demographic, the, the, the ethnic makeup is changing in front of their eyes. Mm-hmm. You know, more than three million Syrians who live there may never leave. You know, well, maybe try to make a, make a go of it there because they can't go back to the Damascus or wherever they're from. There's nothing left there. So, yeah. And so I think it's changed a lot since I've been there. But I, in spite of all of that, never, I, I've only, in, well, I've only ever felt such love and warmness in Turkey. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. I'll be there for a couple weeks for a project with a, you know, a colleague of mine. And um, I'm, I'm so looking forward to it. That'll be amazing. Is there something that you've been involved in in the last couple years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Something that maybe isn't obvious, Mm -hmm. um, but that you really felt like was a triumph or something you were proud of doing? Yeah, a couple of things. One is a documentary film that I made last year in India. It is a nonverbal piece, and it's only told in visual images. I, I collaborated with a cinematographer who's Indian, who I met in my, my work over there with ASTEP, and he's just uh, so talented and so such an amazing artist. And I think it, it's very much related to my religious upbringing. I'm interested in um, this film hopes to, without language, hopes to, um, it tells the story of this, this man who, um, is actually an auto mechanic, works in a garage, he's from South India, and, uh, but he also is, uh, is, um, of the Hindu faith, and he practices, um, Kapakali, which is a dance, yeah, uh, theater art form that's very steeped in Hindu mm-hmm. culture and and belief and he trans, you know, transforms you know, from this auto mechanic to this very specific and if you've ever seen images of that and if you're unfamiliar I did in college that, but yeah it's fascinating and fascinating and what is that what is happening and, <laughs> and it's related to this re- to Hinduism mm-hmm. and I think myself and my, my um, collaborative partner Shivesh he's from North India and knew very little he doesn't even speak you know, the local language, and we were in Kerala, in Trivandrum, in the very south of India, shooting this film, and um, even he was just kind of mystified by, what are you, what is this, this thing that you do, this art, this art form that is related to this um, religion, and so otherworldly, even to him, and can potentially be so scary, and can be divisive, I think, and, mm-hmm. and and I think in my experience with my own upbringing, I realized le- later in my life after I left that 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 has a, so, there's such specific cultural and um, symbolic and you know things that happen in my in my family faith that would look just as weird to this mm-hmm. Indian family. You know, and right. I'm interested. So, what we did instead of focusing on the Kapikali and the uh, the Hindu aspects of it, which is there, it's everywhere in their home because that's their faith and their belief. We focused rather on his two year old daughter and his relationship with her in their daily routine, in their home, with his wife, huh. with his father, with his mother. They all live in the same home. Going to his shop, working on cars. And then he does this thing. It's also a part of his life, his mm. faith and his artistic practice, which are one and the same. But we focus more on him as a human being first. And then secondarily, his faith and religion. And that's where human beings can meet each other as opposed to, that's a really weird thing that you do, opening presents on December 25th. What in the world right. is that? <laughs> you know, or whatever, you know, can look so weird and foreign and it's divisive. Is, there, is it available for people to see? It sounds almost, fascinating. Almost. 
Oh, you're still so in the close. editing? We're in post-production. Okay. And it's so beautiful. That sounds so, amazing. So inspired by him, the cinematographer, by mm-hmm. him. So we've done that. And I'm very proud of that. It's yeah. very much a labor of love. And um, it's just scored. There's no dialogue. It's just visual. Like a very beautiful painting in motion. So anyway, I would prefer people actually not to hear this and then, you know, watch the film and then hear this. I'm curious <laughs> to see what they get from it without this sort of backstory. But that's one thing I'm very proud of that's happened recently. And then the other thing that I'll mention is just because... Um, been such a such a departure and something I did not expect and thought that I would never have a remote interest in storytelling and exploring uh, is that I've recently been consulting with the U.S. military. That's right. You had mentioned this to me before, but yeah, it was a sub branch of the army. This is fascinating. Yes, and I was at the Kennedy Center about a year ago, and um, there was an officer that was doing a presentation for ASTEF, and he. This officer approached me um, after he heard me, you know, talk about his stuff. And he was like, I think um, I have this idea for this project and really would like to talk to you more. And since then, we've um, worked pretty consistently and a lot of a one-star general sort of <laughs> gave us the go-ahead to, to move forward. And so we're devising this pilot that would essentially, so civil affairs is uh, non-infantry and they're really the working, that's the part of the army like really working directly with people in conflict and in post-conflict zones. And um, mostly working on infrastructural things, water and you know plumbing and roads and things like that, but also trying to understand local culture and how the U.S. Um, and our military forces can better understand what's going on and how we can truly help. And, um, right. and I was so skeptical, you know, a year ago, so skeptical and so reticent, and that just tells a lot about where I was in relation to our armed forces, which is a little sad for me to say now, because they have done nothing but come to me with open arms and a real desire and willingness to learn about communication, about theater practice, how we can utilize this and other art forms to dialogue with local communities and understand the nuances of what's happening in these communities. Because what's happening now is they're going and they're taking surveys. And how much, you know, rather than, you know, if you actually work on something like a play or another piece of art that is the, it's it's a more three-dimensional picture of of all of the things, the nuances that are happening within the culture. Hmm. And I think that's what they're interested because interested in, in, in doing more, which is such a how amazing is that to think that our there's some guys and gals in in the ranks in our armed forces who are rethinking how to approach these communities and I've been really humbled by that and I spent a lot of time up at West Point recently working with, with some of the cadets and very intense, a totally different world, but they're very open um, to learning and to utilizing this. Mm-hmm. And it's just a whole new, whole new world for, for them, certainly for me. And I've been uh, brought and trying to bring along um, Bond Street Theater, which is another greatly known profit mm-hmm. here in the city and special that is using theater um, um, in conflict zones. So that's been something I've been personally proud of just because I think all of my training has led me to be able to, or all of this work over the last 10 years, you know, has led me to be able to engage with these officers, colonels and majors and generals who are now coming to artists saying, how can we learn from you? What can we do? And together. That's really exciting. It is. It's a little nerve-wracking strange still for me but um certainly inspiring and um and, and so related to everything you've been working on possible there, you know? Maybe yeah it's possible in other sectors it is possible for you know west point to be thinking you know like we should really use this <laughs> these tools and leverage them in a way that we haven't really done before it's kind of extraordinary yeah and that's been really wonderful to be a part of that
Yeah, that's exciting that they're, they are looking for new ways, mm-hmm. especially since there's so many political things going on where it's obvious that the old ways are not working. That's right. And that, that was where we started. There was a colonel that I've been engaged with, and he just point blank said to me on a, on a trip up to upstate where we were going to see a, a drill, like an actual maneuver that they had set up, and Blackhawks and role, like people who are role-playing civilians and the military people had to have to interact with them and problem solve and negotiate with quote unquote local you know right. civilians there's just uh, he, he said the colonel said to me Abby you know I've been doing this for a long he got ready to retire mm. he's a colonel and he just said it's not okay some things are working but <laughs> it's not working as well as it should be and I, I, we need to do something something's different particularly in civil affairs, because they're really interfacing with people. And so, um, just really grateful, you know, actually, to be involved with them and what they're doing. Um, and I never would have expected that, you know? Yeah. Never. But, yeah. You can't, you can't plan. <laughs> Certainly, I never would have planned that. Yeah. But, um, Of coming at some understanding the people that they're supposed to be serving, you know, and yeah. they are serving. I just don't know how, you know, huh. and not that I know either, but I know I know enough to ask questions and the the way to ask the questions and to make people like it comes back to what you said, like about being heard. Yeah, and to be in a, a safe. I don't know. I don't really believe in. Like, like we can never create an entirely safe space physically or emotionally, but to create enough of a safety net, even in, in the wartime, that people can say, this is what's happening to us, and here's how you can help, and here's how we need to help ourselves. Please stay out of it, you know? So even, right. though, even if that's their answer, like for now we need to do this, because you don't understand the hmm. ramifications if we make this move or you make that move. This is what's going to happen. Hmm. And that cannot be explained, you know, in a survey or in a brief conversation at someone's door. It takes time. Hmm. So. To go back to lighter things. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, and I love it. And I'm so <laughs> glad. I feel silly coming back to these last couple of questions. No, please do. Are there any concrete things that you find yourself reaching for time and like time and again if you're having a day where you're feeling really in the dark side or really uninspired are there books that you go back to are there places that you like to go like something that you can really hold on to I've promised myself now that I I will leave the city at least once a month that's an amazing goal yeah just have to do that for myself even if it's just you know to you know take trailways up to the Adirondacks for a day of hiking or something right it's very important I'm reading um, Big Magic, mm-hmm. which is great. Such a great reminder that art can be a, a daily practice, even if no one else sees it. You know, it's really great. Um, and I think people. I think the, my 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 people are so important and um, just a great conversation. The human resource, you know, of my dear friends and family. So my memory card ran out of space without me knowing right towards the end of our talk. I'm so sorry, Abby. Uh, things happen sometimes. Basically, what is missing is that I asked Abby if she had any recommendations of shows she had seen recently. She mentioned one show that's no longer running called Ironbound at Rattlestick Theater by Martina Mayok. Hopefully I said that uh, correctly, which deals with uh, the lives of immigrants in New Jersey. And also The Father on Broadway, which she said uh, shows the story through the perspective of an elderly man with dementia in a really interesting way and kind of 
gives the audience a peek into the way his brain functions. So check out The Father, look for the work of Martina Mayok, and thank you, Abby, so much for talking with me. It was a pleasure, um, and you're such an inspiration to me. to the compass podcast i'm leah walsh more episodes are coming soon please look for us on facebook in itunes i'd like to thank the following people for their generosity the compass cover art is by kim miller music by brendan spieth audio assistance from nick choksi and a special thanks to frankie j alvarez see you next time Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.